Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the third chapter of the Apostle Paul's Epistle to the Romans where we will one final time be reading verses 27 through 31. It's Romans 3, 27 through 31, and you can find that passage on page 1106 in your pew Bibles. This morning we are going to take one final look at this passage together. You will remember that last week we really never moved on from the very first point that the Apostle Paul makes in the closing of this third chapter in verses 27 and 28. That is, that in this wonderful doctrine of justification, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the free grace of Almighty God alone, there is no room at all left for man to boast in his salvation. In fact, I think we could say with complete conviction that in this amazing way of salvation and in through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you and I should gladly exchange the desire for boasting in ourselves for the praising of our Savior, for God incarnate, who came to this world, who put on flesh, sin accepted, who lived under the curse of the law, who became a curse for us in our place, and in so doing redeemed us from the misery of our sin. If there is one thing that becomes very clear in this doctrine, it is that all of the glory belongs to God and to God alone. And as we have seen the Apostle Paul do so many times before, he he anticipates the reaction of the sinful flesh of man to the offer of the free grace of God. And so he begins by making it very clear that all boasting in man, all boasting in his salvation belongs not in any way to faithfulness, but to faithlessness. We see that the faith that Paul is espousing here appears very different from the self-establishing, self-congratulating, self-glorifying, self-motivated faith that makes up so much of evangelical Christianity in our own day. Man, by his very nature, seeks his own glory, being born at enmity with God, to whom all glory on heaven and earth belong to. Paul never lets up on aiming his sights against all forms of religious self-confidence. All pride is annihilated here in this third chapter. It's destroyed. Paul knows that if you and I are ever to find the assurance that is truly ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must begin by looking away from ourselves towards Jesus Christ. Our hope lies in him alone and can never be found looking inside of us. That is the very structure of this letter. Paul begins by establishing our guilt in the eyes of the law so that we will give up our vain pursuits of the favor of God through the works of our own hands. He is establishing our desperate need for grace all along, so it really comes as no surprise that he attacks our pride here. Beloved, I said it last week, we we need this. We need to hear it. We need to be convicted of its truth. 
We need to let go of our pride and cling with our sin-stained fingers to the Lord Jesus Christ and to Him alone by faith, faith that God gives. That's the purpose here. If we are truly to bring glory to God in the Christian life, we must come to grips with the implications of this doctrine for us right now. But of course, pride comes in many forms, doesn't it? And it's not always so brash. Listen, there are other wrong, prideful reactions that appear much more subtle than what we spoke of last week. His purpose is not to lead us to becoming self-abasing, melancholy, so-called broken people who lack the confidence to get out of bed and face another day as Christians. This is not now a call to find your highest service in God in your false humility, your self-pity, your lack of confidence to do anything other than whip yourself into submission day in and day out, foolishly thinking that God's smile grows larger concerning you only when he sees your stoic frowning and your overall miserable attitude towards this world and life within it. No, beloved. What the Apostle Paul is teaching us here is that God's grace has given us a reason to live life, to spend it, To pour it out cheerfully. He's given us a reason to rejoice. To love every single day as a gift. A gift from God. In which we are to be glad and rejoice in. Another day to satiate your highest desire in singing the praises of God. Beloved, do you understand? So even as the Apostle Paul is calling upon us to give up our foolish pride, he's most definitely not saying that the Christian life is then to be one which is exemplified by sadness and despair and an absolute lack of confidence. Quite the opposite. Because our confidence now is God himself. His promise. His faithfulness, His love, His mercy, His grace, His inability to ever fail in delivering everything that we need. Far from a life characterized by stony-faced resolve to be miserable. The Christian life is to be a life of laughter, joy, tears, rest, comfort in Jesus Christ. You know, last week I closed by pointing you to the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 22, and I'm not going to reread it again this morning, but beloved, I do hope that you've already spent some time looking at it on your own, or perhaps you plan to do so very soon, because it really does summarize this very well, as does Article 23, which continues to build upon the implications of this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. I want you to listen to Article 23 this morning as we begin. It says this, We believe that our salvation consists in the remission of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and that therein our righteousness before God is implied. As David and Paul teach us, declaring this to be the blessedness of man, that God imputes righteousness apart from works. 
And the same apostle says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we always hold fast this foundation, ascribing all the glory to God, humbling ourselves before him, and acknowledging ourselves to be such as we really are, without presuming to trust in anything in ourselves or in any merit of ours, relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone, which becomes ours when we believe in him. This is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching God, freeing the conscience of fear, terror, and dread without following the example of our first father, Adam, who, trembling, attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. And verily, if we should appear before God relying on ourselves or any other creature, though ever so little, we should, alas, be consumed. Therefore, everyone must pray with David, O Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight, no one living is righteous. Beloved, the Apostle Paul really does say a mouthful here in just the closing words of verse 31 in the text that's before us this morning. And it is my hope in unpacking it just a bit today to remind you of this confidence Confidence that is ours as we come to grips with the very purpose of the law of God and this grand picture of our justification, our salvation being rooted in the free grace of Almighty God. So will you look with me uh, this morning to the Word of God and follow along as I read now the closing verses of chapter 3 of Romans, verses 27 through 31. Hear now the Word of the Lord. This is Paul speaking, and he says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning to come to the the preaching of your word and to sit under the teaching of your word. We pray that your spirit would fill us this morning. We pray, Father, that you would clear our minds of all of those things that distract us in this life. We ask that you would allow us to give our undivided attention to your word so that hearing it through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, Paul here once again goes to his method of asking another rhetorical question in verse 31, as we've seen him do many times before. I want to tell you, it's a question that really places its bony finger upon the wound of man's greatest fault, his sin. 
on the very heels of giving to, to man every reason in the world to fall upon his face before God and worship him with a heart filled to near bursting, Paul first anticipates the reaction that comes upon us in our flesh. And of course, I'm talking about our pride. We saw it last week in our proclivity to seek out a little bit of our own glory and salvation. I'm not going to go back into that this morning, but we see here that it is not enough to simply warn us against our foolish pride. Paul gets very specific. What is the reaction that Paul is anticipating here? Well, beloved, I'm sure it's one we're all familiar with. Well then, Paul, I guess that according to your wisdom, the law then becomes worthless, right? We make the law void when we trust God in faith. It's but the ancient version of the all-too-common charge of antinomianism in the face of coming to grips with the glorious free grace of Almighty God in the gospel. So, Paul, according to you, then I should just forget about the law. I've been given license to just go out and live like a real self-indulgent hedonist, to seek my happiness at any expense, and to just stop being so scared of this God and His horrible law. Because after all, Paul, listening to you, I see that God really is not that concerned with my sin. He just wants me to look to Jesus and know that I'm okay, regardless of what I'm actually doing. He just wants me to be happy at any and all cost. Beloved, I want to tell you, I've heard this charge leveled against myself for insisting that we always point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to ourselves. Not to our invented systems of so-called righteousness, not to me as your pastor, but to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I must preach to you Jesus Christ every single time that I step into this pulpit. And I'm sure that I'm not alone there. If you point others to Jesus Christ alone, to the free grace of God in Him, in His work, in His person, in the imputation of His righteousness, I want to tell you this is a common response. And how does Paul answer it? Well, once again, we see him use that emphatic negative. The New King James translates the Greek there as certainly not with an exclamation point. Literally, what it means is, may it never be. Don't even mention such a thing. And then he says something that I've already said, really is a mouthful when you consider it. He says, on the contrary, this message of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, get ready, establishes the law. That's where we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning. Beloved, we must discuss the purpose of the law. Really, this is a transitional point in this letter. Paul, as I said to you last week, is now going into the implications of this doctrine for us as Christians. And as he does so, he's calling upon his hearers to understand the purpose of God's law. In chapter 4, he's going to prove that God's purpose has always been one by looking back at the history of Israel and at faith. 
He's speaking to Jews and to Gentiles here, and he's calling on all of us to come to grips with the purpose of God's law. Now let me just say this morning that I'm not going to go into a technical discussion of the uses of the law. That would come up later in this letter in chapter 8. However, I am going to speak of its ultimate purpose in much more general terms. We come to a statement such as this one, that this doctrine of justification by true faith in Jesus Christ really establishes the law, and we must answer the question of what is the law first and foremost? What does the law of God do? And how is it ultimately established in this amazing salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ? So we begin by answering what it is that we learn in the law. Primarily this morning, I'm going to point you to three things. This is the first one. First, we see in the law the perfect holiness and righteousness of Almighty God Himself. God demands in His law what He is intrinsically in Himself. It is the law of God. That, it is in the law of God that we begin to see the principles of things like truth and honor and integrity and justice and purity. Donald Gray Barnhouse in his collection of sermons from Romans compares the moral law to the coin that comes out of the mint. The coin goes into the mint and it immediately reveals that deep and hidden within the recesses of the great press is the invisible dye which is impressed or minted into the coin. It is the law, it is in the law that we begin to see an impression of the essential being and nature and attributes of Almighty God. In the law, we begin to see his character and his goodness and his justice, his righteousness, his being altogether other from us. It's in the perfect law of God that we can begin to come to grips with that scene from Isaiah 6 where the seraphs are are flying before God and they're veiling their faces from the radiance of His glory and they're crying out again and again, Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. We learn in the law of God that God is perfectly righteous, unimaginably holy, and that He demands the same. Of his creatures. His creation must be righteous even as he himself is righteous. And it makes no difference that that is an impossible thing for us. His essential nature demands it. He is forced by his very being to demand nothing less than perfect righteousness in the eyes of his perfectly holy law in order to stand in his presence. We see in the law of God, his altogether otherness. He's so far above us. The law demands righteousness and holiness, even as God himself is righteous and holy. And that leads us naturally into the second thing that we see in the law. So first, we see the perfection of God. We see his perfect righteousness, his holiness above all creation. And then secondly, 
we cannot help but to see our own absolute deficiency in light of it. We do not and we cannot ever meet the just demands of, these, of this measure. We are condemned by it at every turn. I don't want to belabor this point again this morning. We talked about it plenty in viewing God's indictment of man so meticulously laid out by the Apostle Paul in the first three chapters of this letter. And he's reiterating it again here as he closes this chapter. Beloved, you do not measure up in the eyes of the law of God. You do not even come close. Think about it for just a moment. What is the grand assumption of this charge of antinomianism that is being leveled against the Apostle Paul here? And I want you to understand, this is a real charge. Paul's not creating a straw man argument here like so many armchair theologians in their mom's basements are doing today through their self-congratulatory blogs and articles and whatever other means they employ to show the world how smart they are and how foolish the rest of us are. Read the book of Acts. This was the constant charge against Paul. Listen, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. Acts 21-28. It's an actual charge against the Apostle Paul. Paul hates the law because he's preaching justification solely by the free grace of God given entirely in the person and work of Jesus Christ embraced by faith which itself is the gift of God. Paul's going to bring anarchy. Who will control the masses? What will God himself think? What is the assumption behind the charge of antinomianism? Beloved, the assumption is that man has ever kept the law for even one moment in time. The assumption behind every charge that the preaching of the grace of God leads to license is the erroneous anti-biblical assumption that preaching the law leads to righteousness. The law in and of itself never, ever makes you righteous. It doesn't. It never has. It has always shown man to be the disgusting beggar that he truly is, and it was designed for that very purpose. Do you understand? Beloved, one of the things that you've heard me do often from this pulpit is to refer to the law of God as a mirror. Right? How many times have I, when calling upon you to see the folly of self-righteousness, encouraged you to see the law of God as a mirror into your own soul long before it becomes a window into your neighbors? It's been many times, right? Some of you are like, like every week. That's all you do, talk about the law as a mirror. Well, what does a mirror do? What is the function of a mirror. I've told, I've mentioned this before, but in the years that I spent as a diesel mechanic, Bianca would certainly, I am positive, attest to this. The mirror taught me that I possessed the unique ability day in and day out to become somehow filthier than even the equipment that I worked on. 
And after 14 or 15 hours, every single Saturday afternoon, I would come home from work exhausted and I would meet the the eyes of my wife and immediately see her discomfort with my overall appearance. And then I would make my way towards the couch where I had plans on easing my weary body and she would quickly say, Steve, are you out of your mind? Please go get cleaned up, right? Go take a shower. Don't sit on my couch. Just go look in the mirror. And so, being a simpleton by nature, I would go in and I would turn on the water to to get into the shower and I would turn around and I'd investigate the mirror for the first time of the day. And I was always taken back by what I saw. Matt, I know I've seen you in this exact same, same manner. Right? I would have black oil stains on my skin where oil had penetrated my clothing. I would have grease and grime and filth caked in the corners of my eyes and my nose and my mouth. My beard and my hair would be smeared with grease and dirt. What purpose did the mirror serve? It showed me my ability to get dirtier than anyone ever really should. Let me tell you what it never did. I never stood in front of the mirror in all of my filth and said, all right, Mr. Mirror, I'm very, very dirty. So I guess I'm just going to stand here until you do your work and clean me up. Now you understand, beloved, the mirror was driving me towards the shower. The mirror was showing me my filth so that the shower could then do its much needed work. Without the mirror, I may have camped out on the couch, never seeing the need of the cleansing water of the shower. In that case, it would be the mirror and my wife, so it starts to fall apart. But you get the point, right? The law shows you your filth. It opens your eyes to God's perfection and it highlights your imperfection. It shows you the filthiest person that you can conceive of. But it never cleans you. And it never has. And it never will. Beloved, you cannot approach the law of God as your means of getting clean. Getting right with God. You cannot approach the law of God as your means of gaining his special attention. It's not the means of showing the world just how hard you work at it. Because it always shows you wanting. Beloved, let me ask you, do you believe that? Think of the Bible's many accounts of just exactly that, of people who thought that the law cleaned them up. I'll give you just one from a myriad of examples. You remember the rich young ruler, right? He approaches Jesus and he asks, Oh, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus answers him with the law. He says, You know the law? Do not be an adulterer. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. He could have just as easily gave the young man his own summary of the moral law. He could have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And how does he respond to his glimpse of himself in the law? He says, oh yes, all of that I've kept from my youth. Squeaky clean. I've been cleansed by the mirror of the law. 
I continually allow the law to keep me clean and pretty, to keep me from befouling my appearance. And how does Jesus answer this guy's self-assessment? He says, one more thing. Go, sell everything, give all of the money to the poor, and then follow me. Let me ask you something. Have you ever considered that, that narrative? Did Jesus think that the guy was almost right? That he just needed one more deed to really put him over the top and then he could say that he had actually arrived? Of course not. Jesus pointed out through the law that he was not even close. He immediately touched on that place that occupied a large portion of this man's heart. His soul and his mind and his strength was not God's. He then threw the knockout punch and showing him just how much more he cared about himself than he did everybody else. And beloved, who of us this morning has not witnessed some dirt on our face in the light of the holy law of God? We all do. And we all must. Because it's why we need Jesus. The fulfillment of the law. It's why when we trust Him by faith alone, the law is established. It shows us the holiness of God, His absolute righteousness. It shows us the filthiness of our sin, how far we fall short of meeting its perfect standard. And then it shows us the penalty of breaking the law being exacted. Only Jesus kept it. Only He could. And beloved, only Jesus could fulfill every single one of its just demands, including the cross. He became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law is established in the execution of its perfect penalty. Beloved, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone, is the very heart of the gospel. And Paul is telling you that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that drags everything in the shadows into the light of day. Far from leading you to no longer care about God's being offended by your sin. Far from carrying you away into a life of license and folly, it carries you towards a life of praise. A life of rest and comfort and joy in Jesus Christ by faith. Beloved, it leads to your grateful obedience, satisfying your desire to do the things that bring far more to you than anything that this flickering world could ever offer. Glorifying and enjoying God forever. Do you understand this fundamental truth of Christianity this morning? If not, then know, I know for certain, that you do not have genuine joy. You do not have genuine peace and rest. Worship is not now or ever truly your highest joy or delight. The Christian life is not your highest, most honored privilege, but rather your most taxing work in life and in death, not your comfort. A life probably best understood as a master makeup artist, though the truth is you're not very good at it, at least not as good as you might think. You're probably looking at your watch, anxious for me to just end this so that you can go and sulk somewhere and convince yourself and maybe others that I'm misrepresenting you. I am not. 
This is you. This is me to a T. This is what the word of God says. Me? I'm nothing more than the cracked pot that God has chosen to shine forth the light of his truth here at this time, in this place, this morning. And again, I want to reiterate this morning what the response to the gospel should be. It's never pride. It's never waving your flag before God and men to see. That much is clear. But there are less obvious forms of pride, right? The response is not some trumped up false humility. It's not never moving on from your sin in the eyes of the law and foolishly thinking that God will reward the most obviously sad ones. Those who are so pious as to know that any confidence in the Christian life looks like pride. Nonsense. The confidence is outside of you. Did you hear Article 23 of the Belgic this morning? Read it again and again and again and then read it again. Faith in Jesus Christ does not do what Adam did when he realized in his sin that he was naked and very, very ashamed. It does not look for a way to show God that we're not that bad. Did you catch what Adam did? What did Adam do when confronted by his own filthy nakedness? He attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. Beloved, faith in Jesus Christ moves from the condemnation of the law to the glory of Jesus Christ, and it lives there. Do you understand? We come to the throne of grace in Jesus Christ with confidence, expecting mercy. To live in a false humility, melancholy state because because of your sin is to think that you could do better than you did. It's to trust in yourself, to think higher of yourself than you ought to. I want to tell you there's no piety in it. None. We live in Christ and we do it with uplifted heads. We do it because it's our delight to do it. We go naked to him for dress and we are clothed in the perfect holy garment of his righteousness. Forget the fig leaves. They're ridiculous. God knows what you look like. And beloved, he knows exactly what you need. Because of his grace, he freely gives it. Which clothes are you wearing this morning? Beloved in Christ, your contentment with your chosen clothing in the Christian life will go a very long way in helping you to know whether you are wearing the king's garment or just some silly fig leaves. They don't look alike. Let's pray.